0: Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Solstice. I'm Kai Nagata, and this is your Dogwood Podcast for the month of December. It's been a tough year for a lot of people in BC. The housing crisis, the Site C dam approval, the breakdown of the missing and murdered women's inquiry all hit close to home for many of us. We broke a lot of bad records in BC. Worst year for salmon on the Skeena, worst year for opioid deaths, worst year for wildfires. But the days only get lighter from here. And after years of battling terrible projects and greedy, lying politicians, I would argue that as a province, we are making headway. For the first time in my adult life, I see a window of opportunity, not just to fight the bad stuff, but to lock in deep-rooted changes that will make future victories possible. 2017 taught us that people are tired of old power structures Look at the Me Too movement, the rise of indigenous sovereignty, the political overthrow of Christy Clark and her corporate donors here in BC. People are tired of an economic system that crushes human dignity and mutilates our natural world. So what do we do with this momentum? How do we get from here to the BC we want in as few chess moves as possible? These are the questions we're excited to answer at Dogwood in 2018. We're going to hear from campaigners and organizers on the year that was, and the opportunities that lie ahead. But first, it is fundraising season, so let me make a quick and painless pitch. Look, I'm a Dogwood monthly donor. I know that sounds funny because I work for them, and they pay me, but here's why I turn around and give back some of that money to the organization every month. Dogwood is the only group in BC that can expose government wrongdoing and has the grassroots political muscle to do something about it. We break stories like the US trophy hunting super PAC funneling dark money into the BC election, but we also help crank up voter turnout and inspire people who might have given up on the political process to take back their power as citizens. We bring you original articles and videos, like the drone footage of Kinder Morgan's illegal anti-spawning nets in BC salmon streams. And we give you the tools to take action, like the thousands of people who emailed and called cabinet ministers to crack down on the Texas Pipeline Company. That video equipment, by the way, was purchased thanks to the generosity and foresight of Dogwood donors. We have even bigger plans next year, both on the campaign side and on the organizing side. And if you want to be a part of that, if you believe in our strategy and our people, please set up a monthly donation at dogwoodbc.ca. It cuts way down on the amount of email we send you because monthly supporters are spared the usual fundraising asks. You can think of it like a subscription, but instead of a magazine, you get a healthier, more robust democracy. I'm a monthly donor. You can join me at dogwoodbc.ca. Okay. That's my December fundraising pitch. Let's bring in Lisa Sammartino, our democracy campaigner, to tell us more about the biggest victory of 2017 and what comes next. Welcome, Lisa. Hello. So where were you actually when (laughs) Lieutenant Governor Judith Guichon finally signed the laws into law banning corporate union donations?
1: Uh, I was on vacation because that's what happens when legislation takes two and a half months to go through the legislature. Uh,
0: well-earned. <laughs> a well earned, a well earned vacation after. Uh... So where were you?
1: I think I was actually in bed because I was on the other side of the world and there was a time change. Mm. Um, but technically, I was in a little cottage in South India, looking out at the Arabic Sea.
0: Cool. What did you What did you think when you uh, woke up and saw the news?
1: I. Felt a lot. I felt very lucky um, to be able to work at Dogwood and and do the work that we do. Um, I felt a lot of gratitude to um, you and Christina and Sophie and Ari, who were holding down the fort, and uh, a lot of gratitude to all the people um, of BC who really, who really made this change happen.
0: Does it feel like people out there in the world are still sort of? grasping the significance of this change
1: yeah definitely I um I called I called my dad and I was very excited to tell him and I was like dad like we just changed the democratic makeup of this province and he was like hmm do you want to go fishing next week like it was just like oh um okay (laughs) um I think it's yeah I think it's hard to grasp like what this means for for our lives um but it really is huge. And we've already seen some differences in, in how decisions are made. We looked at like the Massey bridge. Um, they're revisiting the decision to build the Massey bridge. Mm. Dogwood, of course, um, Ari did like a look at all the donations related to the Massey bridge just this week, the trophy hunter, um, lobby. You of course Mm -hmm. have done a lot of research into, um, us super PACs trying to influence the grizzly hunt in BC. Um, and, and the NDP are making decisions, um, that aren't based on those donations mm. um, that, that reflect what most British Columbians want.
0: Yeah. I mean, for those of us who grew up in BC, like this political donation regime was the norm. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a fish, you don't know that you swim in water. This is the, the world that we grew up in where corporations just had unlimited access and could give unlimited money to political parties. It'll be fun to try to spot the new ways that companies use to try to exert their influence yeah. right through the avenues it's kind of like whack-a-mole but this is the major step to yeah. um getting people thinking about that and how decisions are made and and how citizens need to um intervene to hold their politicians accountable
1: and and a part of i think the victory of this is that every day british columbians have seen the way that money could have impacted the political system um, and now maybe more conscious of that. Hmm. Um, so as soon as we build a wall that like dark money starts rolling in through it and we know that it'll always find a way through the loopholes, but hopefully now people, the public are more conscious of that and, yeah. and can start calling it
0: out. We've drawn a moral line in the sand, what's right and wrong. And yeah. now we can actually start to spot and hold our government
1: accountable to that. Um, which is really like what, Democracy is all about
0: So Dogwood actually started agitating around political donations in 2001 after mm-hmm. the election that year and a legal challenge launched at that time supported by Dogwood and other groups, led to the creation of the database in 2005, which we still use today yeah. so the public can like at least see where the parties are are getting their money
1: and now more often
0: right so over the over the years, I mean we've seen these incremental uh, improvements and mm-hmm. and groups and individuals started saying, you know, on top of disclosure, we need to just ban these types of donations overall. And then, of course, we weighed in uh, a couple of years ago with the Ban Big Money campaign. What do you think overall led to this tipping point where we actually have laws now at the municipal level and the provincial level?
1: Yeah. I mean, like you said, Dogwood's been working on this um, for a number of years. Groups like Integrity BC and Democracy Watch have also been um, trying to shine the light on this problem um, we've had some stellar journalists in this province talking about it. Um, and then also like politicians have been talking about this, the BC greens advocated through their whole campaign, um, Mm -hmm. to ban big money. The BC NDP introduced a bill while they were in opposition six times. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: but municipal politicians too. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff Meggs and Andrea Reimer. Uh, I just remember because I'm a Vancouver Mm -hmm. resident. They made a fuss about this on council going back a number of years. And I think, um, um, the mayor of Quesnel at some point, I remember mm-hmm. hearing this, the union of BC municipalities actually yeah. voted on it this yeah, year, that's right. but they've supported that. But in the it's past.
1: all these things. And yet we saw such little change, mm-hmm. um, and, and essentially lip service from the government. Um, and I think what actually made the difference was, um, people started seeing and connecting it to their lives, seeing how big money impacted um, their influence over government. And, um, and really stood up and said, like, this is enough. Enough is enough. Um, but we were also, our organizers and our volunteers were turning people out to vote. And they were connecting with people who mm. sort of saw this connection and were saying, like, get out to the polls, make a difference. Um, right. You're
0: mad? Do something about it. Yeah.
1: And I mean, it's no accident that we elected two parties that hold the balance of power.
0: We British Columbians. Yeah,
1: we elected two parties that hold the balance of power that really valued mm-hmm. um political mm-hmm. campaign or finance reform and made it their first act of government.
0: Um, well, it was a huge mistake. And I think that, that BC liberal strategists would admit this now to dig in their heels
1: and have admitted it. <laughs> yeah. To
0: push back, um, on that, you know, the will of whatever it was, 86% of the people in BC. Yeah. It's just a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we saw them of course, flip flop after the election with the, the throne speech. So yeah. yeah. What, uh, what comes next?
1: Um, well, you know, we know that while we're able to move forward with some really great rules, um, to govern campaign finance, um, there are still decisions that have been made in the past that are still impacting British Columbians. Um, and, w- and we don't know if political donations have, have influenced those government decisions, but if they have, legally morally, those, those decisions should be sent back to the drawing board if they were influenced by big money. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are calling for a corruption inquiry. Um, we need to really dig in and clean out the, the legislature and um, to ensure that like, decision-making is actually accountable and right. transparent.
0: So it'll be fun. We'll figure them out.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that, I mean, really will make a difference, I think, in our democracy.
0: So you you campaign on democratic reform. Uh, A lot of people would say, well, Dogwood's a progressive group. Why aren't you jumping into the fight on proportional representation?
1: Um, Right now, the government is in a consultation, public consultation period, so they can figure out what they want the referendum question to actually be. as you know, there's a lot of different choices for, um, a different political system or democratic system than the one we have now. People who are listening that really care a lot about this issue should go take the government's consultation survey. Um, it's on their website, mm-hmm. engage.gov.bc, mm-hmm. um, .ca. And, uh, and, but the reality is like, we're a nonprofit and we have very limited resources. Um. So to wade into our campaigns, we just have to make sure that we have the adequate resources to do a good job. And, and that's why we're so effective is if we have to make hard choices. Yeah, I think and- what's
0: clear is that when, when democratic opportunities pop up for people to have their say uh, in how the province is governed, we try to get our supporters to participate. And mm. that includes elections at the municipal level, provincial, federal, and it includes referenda. Um, but without knowing what the question is, difficult to take a position on whatever process and whatever system the government's putting forward.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure.
0: So, what are you what are you excited about in twenty eighteen either at Dogwood or around the world?
1: Uh, I was looking through our our communications from last New Year's, and we said our our New Year's resolutions were to ban big money and Woo. get fossil fuel companies on the ropes. Um, and I think like check and check. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to locking that down a win um, against US Thermal Coral um, exports and, uh, and Kinder Morgan, of course.
0: Thanks so much, Lisa.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Happy holidays.
0: Happy holidays. Next up, Sophie Harrison, just back from her daily rounds, checking on Kinder Morgan's Christmas display in Burrard Inlet. Welcome, Sophie.
2: <laughs> Indeed. Thanks, Guy.
0: Uh, it's looking pretty festive out there.
2: Yes. Um, every day I go for these walks on the trails behind our Dogwood office out here in Burnaby, and you can see Kinder Morgan's construction equipment just all all lit up for the holidays.
0: Garlands of concertina wire.
2: Oh, gosh, it's awful.
0: <laughs> Just a sweet smell of potpourri wafting in from the diesel generators. Mm. Yeah. Um, so the, the Westridge portion aside, they told investors months ago that they had their permits in hand, uh, ready to build, shovels in the ground. So what gives? I mean, aside from this little display, we're not seeing um, any other construction.
2: Yeah. I mean, they were lying to investors about having all of their permits. They're still missing hundreds of permits.
0: We have our permits in hand, said Ian Anderson. In nope. hand. Nope. <laughs> generally meaning that they have been given to us.
2: Yeah, one one would think. Uh no, but yeah, I... this project is still Um, has lawsuits at the federal level, the provincial level up against them. They still don't have a route approved for hundreds of kilometers of the pipeline in BC. Uh, So they absolutely do not have all their permits yet. I think they're continuing to put on this show for investors, and I think they're hoping in the months to come that some of those permitting issues, as they would call them, um, get resolved by our favorite industry-captured regulator in Calgary.
0: Ah, yes. Speak of the devil. Uh, So the National Energy Board... Um, Of course, still uh, funded by industry and controlled by the PMO, is doing everything it can to help Kinder Morgan make up for basically a lack of due diligence. Like they just didn't get their applications in on time and they have screwed up at every stage. They were incomplete. So now the NEB is trying to help them catch up. Uh, What should we be on the lookout for in January.
2: Right. So the ruling that just came down earlier this month uh, was the NEB allowing Kinder Morgan to build in Burnaby without um, a handful of municipal permits. Uh, But there's a second part of Kinder Morgan's proposal basically asking for an ongoing process to um, bypass any municipal or provincial permit that they happen to find inconvenient. So I think we're on the lookout for a few things going forward. One is the reason for their first ruling, right? They still have offered no explanation about why they're letting Kinder Morgan bypass Burnaby laws. Uh, but the second thing we're going to be looking for is how they're going to treat that um, that next request from Kinder Morgan. Because I think that's a lot more dangerous for all of us here in BC and even across the country.
0: So they're looking for a permanent override, basically some mechanism.
2: An ongoing process where they could just build without permits again.
0: Right. Um, after the... National Energy Board and the federal government put a very clear condition on them, which is that you have to follow the local process, get your permits. I mean, there's a reason we have these systems in place. It sounds wonky, but like that's how you protect human health and drinking water and riparian habitat and like things like
2: parking and traffic.
0: (laughs) That's why cities have permitting processes. Otherwise, it would be this libertarian nightmare
2: for yes. real. And I think what we're what we're seeing now, right, is you were saying that one of the conditions that Justin Trudeau approved this pipeline and oil tanker project with is that, you know, They need all the local permits. So what we're seeing is Justin Trudeau breaking yet another promise. Um, He weighed in last month in support of this Kinder Morgan Mm. motion to build without permits. He promised when he approved this thing that he would enforce the conditions and now he's not even doing that.
0: Before that there's the thing about communities giving permission too. Right,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. Just how how many levels of betrayal can we go? I think we have have yet to see.
0: So the, the company did say earlier this month that they can't commit to major spending on construction until they get clarity on the regulatory picture. So that's what the NEB is now trying to do, is basically just sweep all those bothersome local jurisdictions out of the way. So inconvenient. But they also mentioned judicial reviews in that note to investors. What do you make of that line when they say they can't commit to spending the money until they get clarity around the...
2: I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it shows that Kinder Morgan knows what we've known all along, and that is that a single one of these legal challenges from, say, a First Nation could overturn the approval, um, either at a federal or a provincial level. So to me, it just makes plain sense for Kinder Morgan to not want to invest even more money in this project that might never go forward if one of these First Nations legal challenges is successful.
0: Right. They've said they lose $90 million a month that the project is delayed. Um, and, I mean, that brings me to my my... I guess, larger question, which is that there is a there is a point. We don't know where it is. There's a tipping point where it's just no longer worth losing money on something that's not going to get built. And, you know, this is a company that was born out of Enron. Um, you know, they've gotten creative in some of their uh, literature to investors in the past. I get the sense that they are closer to that tipping point than perhaps they would let on. And so um, I'm just curious, what, what are the odds of, of the the bottom just dropping out of this at oh, some point in the next year.
2: Well, that sounds like a tough prediction to make. And and it's it's really tricky, right? Because Kinder Morgan is going to continue to bluff for investors right up until the point they decide it isn't worth it anymore. And right, you know, because
0: they're just raking in money this whole time. Yeah. They're saying we're going ahead, so give us a little bit more right. going around to the banks.
2: And I think th- there are a few things, you know, if for instance Um, this whole permitting issue does get resolved and we do see the federal government and the federal regulator crush local jurisdiction and let this pipeline company build. Um, You know, I I think there are a few things that could land their way where they'd be like, okay, now we can go forward. But I don't think they're at that point yet. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think, yeah, as you've said, they're in a shakier position than they want to make themselves seem. And the fact that they're making those, even those small emissions to investors, I think says a lot.
0: Do you ever think about what you want to do with your life after the oil tanker era is over and all of these proposals have been defeated?
2: Oh, do I ever? Um, yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been fighting these things since I was 16 years old. So I think a lot about just this like whole cohort generation of us that have grown up in this movement and how much how many wonderful things we could be putting our energy towards if we didn't have to keep fighting these fossil fuel expansion projects, like fight things from getting worse. What if we could actually be, you know, building building a better province?
0: Sounds good. Focused, determined, fierce. (laughs) Dogwood Sophie Harrison, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Merry Christmas. Mm -hmm. Speaking of carbon pollution and low-hanging fruit, we need to talk about coal us thermal coal the dirtiest source of power in the world and this year exports through the port of vancouver spiked after a long period of decline mike soron is dogwood's south of the Fraser organizer and resident climate hawk welcome to the podcast howdy guy uh so why why would we be seeing this uptick in coal trains coming through white rock and delta
3: yeah, I know, it seems pretty wild. Uh, we're hearing a lot of talk about coal use uh, on decline in North America, and yet there are more and more coal trains uh, rolling through our backyard here in British Columbia. Uh, it's really unusual, but the reason is, uh, ports are in Canada and the United States are getting closed to coal export. Uh, In the Pacific Northwest, uh, Vancouver is the last remaining uh, coal export port. Uh, And this means that we are taking more of the brunt of of U.S. coal mines. Uh, They need to get their product overseas, and we are their last resort. I did a little back of the napkin
0: math, and I think this year we're projected to ship almost 10 million tons up from about six and a half last year. So that's like 200 more coal trains rolling through these communities. And, and that, mm. I mean, it's coming from Montana, so that's not just us. That's all of the communities along the tracks along the way. That's a pretty significant uh, jump. So uh, on top of that, we know the Fraser Surrey Docks proposal is still alive. That would add another 4 to 8 million tons to our export capacity. Uh, it just seems crazy to me that Canada is considering expanding this industry doesn't that seem contrary to their
3: rhetoric, you know, on the world stage? Yeah, it uh, it really does. It's a sad story, actually. It reminds me a lot of Canada's relationship with asbestos over time. Hmm. Um, we sort of proudly uh, get a, a dangerous and toxic material out of our schools and homes uh, because we care about our kids, our families. We don't want people getting sick, and meanwhile, we continue to export a dirty product overseas to poor folks and uh, you know, folks in countries that don't have democracies as strong as ours or health assessments as strong as ours. And um, and we sort of brag about the work that we're doing. In fact, conceivably,
0: the shutdown of those power plants in North America could create a backlog
3: of, of coal that needs to find a market somewhere. And oh, absolutely. It's just, it's just incredible how many coal-fired power plants are shutting down in North America, in Europe, and, and even in China. It's uh, a story that really is worth celebrating. But what it means is that coal mines in Kentucky and Virginia um, need to find new markets for their thermal coal product. Um, thermal coal is, is a very low-quality uh, fuel There's, or uh, product. There's not a lot else that can be done with it. And that's why um, they're finding markets in Asia, Indonesia, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, as countries shift to shift to natural gas and renewables.
0: Some people would say, "Look, um, this doesn't show up on our carbon ledger, right?" And ultimately, unless we can curb demand in these other countries, like why should people in BC care? It's basically coming through for a few kilometers from the U.S. border over to Delta. I mean, why should British Columbians give a shit?
3: <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I, I give a shit because uh, it, it, it hurts my soul that Canada is part of this toxic, deadly product. Coal is death. Uh, and I think it's really disappointing that uh, we're making excuses to continue exporting this deadly product overseas. But even before it leaves our shores, uh, it is harming Canadians. Coal is dangerous to ship, and it's dangerous to store. That's part of why these coal ports in Washington and elsewhere are being denied permits, uh, and so many communities are standing up and demanding stronger health assessments and stronger environmental assessments. So in the last
0: election, Premier Clark actually referenced uh, some of those health impacts. I, I know.
3: It was absolutely extraordinary. I can't— I, Right? Yeah, we barely—I mean, I couldn't even believe it happened, the—, the... Response from Chrissy Clark on this was uh, yeah, and really she said surprising. we should charge seventy bucks a ton yeah,
0: um, which I believe is about what a ton of coal sells for these hmm. days. So she would essentially hmm. wipe out any possibility of profit uh, through a regulatory fee on the BC side of the border to choke off this industry. You, would that actually be a solution? Would that stop coal trains? Coming through the port
3: of Vancouver. Well, it would—it it certainly could, and at the very least, it would help us uh, recover some of the social costs of uh, of this carbon uh, pollution, this coal moving through our community. Um, you know the the. The sort of accident of where we're at now is that all these U.S. coal shippers aren't paying our carbon tax, um, so they're getting a, a free ride on top of the damage that they're bringing to our community. Uh, they're actually not paying in the same way that a domestic producer would. Um, and so what uh, Christy Clark had been proposing is to sort of equalize this. Um, you know, obviously we want to see thermal coal exports be stopped, but at the very least, uh, this gets a price on U.S. coal that uh, currently doesn't pay the same fees as Canadian producers. And with luck, uh, making them fairly uh, cover the costs of of shipping their product um, might actually mean that they can't move their product through B.C. anymore.
0: Yeah, I can see how that argument would appeal even to fiscal conservatives who aren't particularly motivated by uh, the health impacts, so they don't live near the tracks. But just the idea that this dying, decrepit, corrupt industry in the U.S., which is basically... life support, thanks to Trump, oh, yeah. could get a hand from the B.C. government in the, in the sense that they mm-hmm. ship their product for free. The sooner we get this wrapped up, the better. So Trump loves it. It poisons children in <laughs> Delta and White Rock, and then it goes overseas and like contributes to the moral stain of irreversible climate change and chokes people in India and Bangladesh. Why can't we muster the political will, do you think, from these progressive... Politicians in Canada and in BC to stop this. Uh, well, it is, or I... maybe I can phrase that a better way. What are you doing <laughs> to muster the political
3: will? Because it, it just when you put it that way, it's it's just so bloody unacceptable. We've already talked a little bit about the coal levy, uh, getting a uh, regulatory charge on US thermal coal that's transshipped here through British Columbia. And the nice thing about that is the NDP government doesn't need to wait for anybody's permission to do it. They don't need to go and talk to hmm. Trudeau. They don't need to, you know, work with folks under uh, the climate change act, under the climate change plan, they can actually just just do it, implement it as a regulatory charge. Uh, and so we're meeting with government uh, and regularly talking about this. Um, MLAs like Tracy Reddy's in White Rock actually campaigned on this. She took out newspaper, mm-hmm. newspaper ads mm-hmm. uh, during the last provincial election uh, talking about how she would end coal trains uh, moving through White Rock. Uh, now she's a sitting MLA. Um, I, I patiently await a private member's bill or some advocacy from her to fulfill that uh, commitment to the people who voted for her. And there's folks like uh, Ian Patton in, uh, in South Delta, um, also someone who's uh, you know been a strong advocate for the community around coal trains, and we hope to see him continue that in opposition this is a real chance for for liberals uh especially new folks like ian Patton, and and to really show where they stand on this issue and and look out for their community um possibly by pushing the ndp government to to get to work on um equalizing the the levy on u.s thermal coal producers so that's definitely one and then the other thing is uh this new global coal alliance really does give us a uh, opportunity to push the the federal government on this as well we could treat thermal coal the same way that we've treated asbestos. If it's bad for Canadians, so bad for Canadians that we're shutting down thermal coal plants from coast to coast, uh, we should stop exporting it to places overseas. And I will be working with local teams on the ground, meeting with MLAs and MPs over the course of the next year and 2019 to make sure that we have elected officials that are standing up for British Columbians and doing the responsible thing on climate and public health and stopping thermal coal export. Thanks a lot, Mike. Cool. Thanks, Guy. Great to talk to you.
0: Well, that about does it for Dogwood in 2017. We've got some big stuff coming up next year. Like Mike said, we're working on a reboot of our Beyond Coal campaign south of the Fraser. We're also going to hound Kinder Morgan's oil tanker project into an early grave. This bastard child of Enron never should have gotten this far and 2018 is the year we say goodbye to oil tanker expansion projects on the BC coast. I'm feeling it. Dogwood is also building an exciting new youth organizing program to share some of what we've learned with the people who are going to be running the province in a few years and we'll be keeping an eye on the PR referendum and local municipal races as the 2018 election cycle rolls around. We're looking at A new regional campaign in northern BC, likely joining forces with some of our old allies on the Enbridge Pipeline fight. So if you want to support our work, please consider a monthly donation through dogwoodbc.ca. Our monthly donors power the whole organization. They give us the financial footing we need to stay nimble and stay in the field. There's lots of worthy groups in BC vying for your support. Please consider an investment in Dogwood. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm Kai Nagata, wishing you a restful holiday season, safe travels, and a happy new year. We'll talk to you in 2018.